Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is September, September 18th of 2014. Tomorrow, September 19th, is Talk Like a Pirate Day, for those of you that care. Um, but tonight, our guest is Dr. Carl Hart. He's a professor of neuro psychopharmacology at Columbia University. He is the author of High Price. He's a critic of the drug war. He's doing lots of really interesting research. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website, and our book, our website, is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Hart, is with us right now. I'm going to bring him on. Hi, Carl. How are you doing this evening? Hey, good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Your book, High Price, is a really good book. It exposes a lot of mythology. It talks a lot about your research. I want to start with talking about some of your research um, because, you know, uh, generally we have this idea that uh, people who are addicted to drugs, they have no control. Uh, you know, they, they, they're completely out of control. They just will do anything for drugs. And, and you did some research on that, and found that was not quite true. What what was that research about? What did you find? Yeah, before I talk about the research, I just want to say, you know, the, 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 the comment that you made in terms of our sort of perspective in terms of thinking that these folks who are addicted, they are completely out of control. Uh, just so people just think just a little bit, uh, if we think about people who use drugs being out of control, first of all, people who use drugs, that mean they have to procure their drugs somehow. And if you're going to procure your drugs, you got to use some cognitive abilities or skills in order to know where you're going to get the drug, how you're going to plan to get it, money, dealer, all of these kinds of things require higher cognitive function and inhibitory control, all of these sorts of things that we don't give people credit for. That's number one. So you don't really need research to tell you that the notion that people who are addicted are out of control, they can't control themselves, all you have to do is look carefully. But we did some research for people who didn't want to look carefully. And our research, um, the, I think the study that you're, you're talking about is where we brought cocaine users into the lab and we gave them a choice between uh, $5, for example, in one's experiment and uh, a hit of cocaine that's worth more than $5. And we repeated this on many occasions across several days. And what we found was that uh, the cocaine users chose the $5 on about half of the occasion and the money on the other half of the occasion, indicating that, yeah, they certainly can in, they certainly can um, exercise some inhibitory control even when the alternative is some nominal amount of money like $5. But when you increase that amount of money like we did with a subsequent study with methamphetamine, we increased the amount of money to where the alternative was $20.00. They almost never took drug, and so you can see how you can shift or alter the behavior of people who are, who even are drug addict, or drug addicted, and uh, if you have um, sufficient, appropriate, attractive um, alternatives. I remember there's a similar study with uh, people with alcohol dependence. I think in the 1960s that had the same result. Did you ever look at that one? 
Um, I don't know if are you talking about Allen's work, Allen Marlowe's work? Uh, it's not Alan Marlette. It was someone else. But uh, yeah, uh, there was a very similar um, study about rewards for alcohol dependence, and they found the same thing. You know, when people they gave people money, they said. No, I'd rather have oh, the money than, Jack, than the was, alcohol. Was that Jack Mendelson and Nancy Mer- uh, Mello's work? I think so, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know that work. I know that study. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They uh, Again, it's the same principles that alternatives can shift choice. I mean, attractive alternatives can shift behavior away from drug taking. Yeah, I know that study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we should realize this. I mean, the, the most addictive drug, surprising to some people, is really cigarettes. But, you know, smokers can sit at their desk and wait for their cigarette break to go out and smoke. They don't light up at their desk uncontrollably. Yeah, particularly now, um, particularly now that we have now uh, restricted places where people can smoke. Yeah, of course. So the notion that drug users, drug addicts, and when I say drug addicts, I just simply mean the DSM terms of substance use disorder. So the notion that people who meet criteria for drug addiction is out of control, that's a caricature. That is uh, hyperbole, hype, all the rest of these things that make great TV, great movie drama, great documentary dramas, and great stories for newspapers, but it's less than reality. That is rare. That's a rare, uh, extreme example. Uh, It's not the typical drug-addicted person. Well, tell me a little bit more about the typical drug-addicted person. What is the typical drug-addicted person like? Or is there even such a thing as a typical drug-addicted person? Yeah, I think you just hit it on the head when I, when we say, I don't know if there is a typical drug-addicted person because if you look at the criteria for the DSM, there are 11 symptoms and then and people need to meet a certain number to be considered a, a, drug, a drug addict. And they can meet, they can endorse a wide range, a number of people can endorse a wide range of symptoms. So like one person might endorse these five symptoms, whereas somebody else might endorse these four symptoms, and which are different. And so uh, I don't know if people who are addicted have look the same. All I'm saying is that the people, our stereotypical view of what the drug addict looks like is an exception, and that person rarely exists besides in the movies or on some some article written by somebody who doesn't know anything about drug drug addiction. Yeah, we get this message, uh, well, from NIDA, from a lot of places, that, uh, you know, the, the addiction takes over the prefrontal cortex and you go out of control and you rob everybody. And, you know... I was highly addicted to alcohol at one point. I was highly addicted to cigarettes, too, and I've overcome both of those addictions. I'm still addicted to caffeine. I never robbed anybody for any of those addictions. Yeah, yeah. The, the note, when people start talking about the brain, what they're really telling you, when they say things like you just said in terms of the prefrontal cortex is out of control, or what they're really t- telling you now is that I'm getting ready to tell you some bullshit that you will believe because I'm going to use some language that you don't know anything about. That's what they're telling you. So the question that people who are listening to this should say, I'm sorry, what is the evidence that the prefrontal cortex is dysregulated? What is the evidence that the the prefrontal cortex is somehow dysfunctional? Where is your evidence to show this? When you start asking people for evidence, the story falls apart. 
Mm-hmm. So, but do we see some? Do we see some influences on the prefrontal cortex? Do we see anything? Anything that's measurable? Um, anything that's measurable from drugs, you mean? Yes. I have been studying neuroscience and drugs for about twenty-five years. I have not seen anything remotely resembling something that might give you a clue that the prefrontal cortex is dysfunctional, dysregulated after drug use in in humans. Now, if you give large doses to animals, doses that are 20, 30 times what humans take, um, yeah, you can see some toxicity, for example, uh, throughout uh, certain areas in the brain, um, but that's not saying much because these doses are not relevant to the human condition because if you give large doses of nicotine, you will probably kill the animal. If you give those same sort of doses of nicotine that you are talking about, maybe to uh, maybe amphetamine or cocaine, you give those large doses, you might see some toxicity. But with nicotine, you'll probably kill the animal if you give such large doses. So it's, it's not really relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember one of your studies I saw, I, I recall correctly, was about uh, cognitive uh, change in loss of cognitive ability, which is uh, that's something that's been touted a lot with methamphetamine use and other drug use. And tell us what you found when you were when you went into that study. Well, I, I don't know which which study are you referring to. Because um, um, uh, well, I've done I don't multiple it, methamphetamine it, studies. Well, I know one was refuting uh, the oh, claim that you, there is the a critical law. review. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the yes, critical review. The, the critical review was that um, I was concerned that when I read the scientific literature, uh, the, what people were concluding, what they were discussing in their discussion section, was beyond the scope of their data. So they were speculating way beyond uh, what the data indicated or suggested. And the speculation was always in the direction of how horrible these drugs are. So if you see a difference, I'll give you an example. If you have two groups, one group non-drug users, other group drug users, and then you see some difference in the brain in some area, I don't know, you look at 20 areas and you find some differences in two or three, it's always interpreted as pathology for the, the drug using group. Now, difference, of course, is not pathology. One way you see if it's pathology is that you give, oh, something that the brain, uh, you could, a measure of the brain's performance, like a cognitive test. If you see these differences in the brain, and then you give a cognitive test, for example, and you see no difference on performance, it tells, that's a clue that maybe these brain differences that we see are not dysfunction. It's just a difference. Let me give you another example. When you image women versus men, there are some areas where women are, have less white, mer- white matter than, uh, than men. But we don't interpret that difference as women being cognitively impaired compared to men. It's just a difference. Like if you image my brain versus your brain, we will probably find some differences if we image, oh, 20, 30 different regions. 
that difference doesn't mean that it's pathology. Our, the difference that we see could just be within the normal range of human variability. Humans vary on a number of things. Like some of us are taller than others. When we see someone who is taller than me, we don't say that I am what height impaired, right? Uh, but that's what we're doing with the brain imaging sort of stuff. We're seeing that these differences are pathological. So if someone is taller or shorter, doesn't mean that they have some pathological problem. There can be positive things about drug use, and uh, yeah, if we there talk are about positive cast- things about drug use. There are yeah, positive absolutely. things about drug use. Well, if we talk about caffeine and coffee. Uh, people are always pointing out these days, there's always a new study that says caffeine is good for you, coffee is good for you. But, you know, people, every drug that people use, they use because there's something positive about it, or they wouldn't use it. Yeah, you know, I'll be happy when, like, the society moves beyond that low-level conversation. That's of course. I mean, if people don't do things if there isn't some benefit into in it for them. I mean, like the, like you're talking about ca- caffeine. How about we talk about heroin? There are clearly some benefits of using heroin to people. Otherwise, they wouldn't use heroin. There are benefits mm-hmm. to methamphetamine. There are benefits to cocaine. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Now, this is not an endorsement for people to go out and use it. This is just someone who is concerned or trying to study human behavior and try to figure out why people are behaving like they behave. Well, you take heroin because there are some benefits. What are those benefits? Well, let's see. Heroin can decrease anxiety. Heroin can enhance sleep. Heroin can increase euphoria. Heroin can do a number of things for some people in a beneficial sort of way. Let's figure out what the benefits are to these folks and figure out how we can help or maybe provide alternatives that will be equally beneficial. Now, it's is everyone that uses heroin, does everyone become addicted, or are there recreational users? Yeah, yeah, there are recreational users of heroin, of course. And there are a number of people who are using heroin, and they are meeting their obligations, going to work, taking care of their family, paying taxes, doing whatever they are supposed to do. Of course there are recreational users of heroin. Yeah, it's I was reading um, the, the chief surgeon that founded John Hopkins University was a lifelong morphine addict, and it didn't stop he, he, him. He was a what? What, what, what type? Lifelong morphine. Morphine. Was he, he an was addict lifelong. or was he a lifelong user? Uh, the, his diary, he says he was addicted. He uh, used the morphine to get himself off of cocaine because cocaine was destroying his life. But when he substituted morphine, he was able to function every day. Who was who was this? Halstead? Uh, I think so. I think there is. Yeah, Halstead. Really, yeah, yeah, the guy who discovered, uh, discovered the local anesthetic properties of cocaine. I think that's I think that's his name. I know I was reading yeah. his bio about six months ago or something. So and you know he just yeah William the, Halstead. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't really. He's called a morphine. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, so I don't know if I would call him a morphine addict. I mean, 
this is like people have they 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 get this term wrong when they say, oh, this person is a uh, functional addict. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a functional <laughs> addict. I mean, if somebody well, is, I'm sorry. That's a that's a really interesting thing in the language where you know. Is there a difference between addiction and dependence? Do, do, are they used uh, synonymously, or do they mean very different things? Because he definitely had a morphine dependence. He would go through withdrawal if he stopped using it. But, you know, people yeah. use the word addict differently. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, so, like, I, well, that's why when I said when I was using addict, I was referring to the DSM to make it clear um, what I was talking about as I talk about these things, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we think about, as we think about um, um, the DSM definition, it's clear, whereas physical dependency can be a part of it, but it's not required, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think about physical dependency as being important for drug drug addiction it's not because um, we can think about people who are in a hospital uh who are taking morphine for their pain that's related to cancer and then the cancer is cleared up they no longer need the morphine they will experience withdrawal but nobody will consider them an addict we can also think about the person who's taking an antidepressant medication like fluoxetine or Prozac. When they abruptly discontinue those medications, they'll experience some physical withdrawal, but nobody would call them an addict. Mm-hmm. So physical dependence is not that important. Um, it, it certainly can be a, a, a symptom in diagnosing somebody with a substance use disorder, but it's not the major thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, now if we look at tobacco use disorder, it seems that the reason that, that people are diagnosed is because well, cigarettes are really bad for you if you smoke a lot of them every day. But, you know, this, it's not like we see some of the impairment of people unable to do their jobs because they're smokers, but it's a, but they are physically dependent. Yeah, and people are physically dependent on caffeine and they go to work, they pay their taxes, they do what they need to do, and we don't vilify them. Well, t- tell me a little bit about the drug war. Um, is the drug war enforced equally among all races, classes, and for everybody, or is there a lot of disparity going on? I'm giving you a leading question, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the thing about the drug war and sort of racial disparities is like, it's not that different from any other sort of way that we police in this country. That's just the thing. It's uh, um, America has always taken advantage of, of, of the underdog or the people who are um, uh, can be taken advantage of. So if you if you had a drug war, you fought the drug war with such intensity. In, on the Upper West Side, uh, by the way, that's white, predominantly um, uh, upper middle class, and people have resources, lawyers being an important resource. If you fought the do- drug war in those communities, the drug war would not last very long because they would be in court, people would be in court, and um, the court system would be tied up. 
However, if you if you have you fight your drug war with such intensities in poor communities, people who can't afford lawyers, people who the society don't really care about, then it increases the likelihood of you being successful if your goal is to fight a drug war. So that's not different uh, than a number of things in our society. I think about Ferguson, Missouri. One of the reasons that the Ferguson police were able to behave in this way for so long it's because it was a community uh, primarily low uh, lower income black people um and so you can take advantage of these folks and nobody really cares until somebody screws up royally like what has happened mhm mm-hmm. so our drug war ha- i'm sorry go ahead go ahead no so our drug war has been going on with intensities i mean with fierce intensity for about 30 years, and most of the time, people, the general public, really didn't care. They didn't care because it affected people who had limited resources and people who were from, in general, out-groups, despised groups. And what's been the effect on our prison population and uh is there disparity in who's in prison compared to who's not in prison for drug use? Um, well, um, you said what's been the effect on our prison population? Yeah, have have we had a great increase in the number of people that are incarcerated? So I think before like 1985 or so, we had about 500,000 people in prison. Uh, and that was for our entire history of the country, about 500,000 people in prison. And then over the next 30 years, this intense war on drugs, that number has quadrupled or it certainly has gone up to 2.3 million. So it's been, you can see the rapid increase and the number of people who have uh, been, who are now incarcerated as a result of the war on drugs. And so you know, the war on drugs has really filled up our prisons and has made sure that there will be people who have jobs, um, prison guards, law enforcement officials. They are, all, they are all benefiting handsomely with this war on drugs. Treatment providers, all of these folks are benefiting beautifully. And is there any disparity in uh, who's in prison uh, in terms of racial disparity, socioeconomic status? Yeah, the people in prison, of course, are poor people. Poor racial minorities are dominate the sort of people in prison. Uh, but that's how it is in our society. That group is always being taken advantage of. But the thing that, that w- w- the, the major group that is in that has the greatest disproportionate number of people are black males. Uh, just to give you an example, black males make up about 6% of the general population of the United States, about 6 They make up 35% of the prison population. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were to end the war on drugs, would uh, everybody from the president down immediately start shooting heroin with the 
it would everything run out of control and everybody go wild on drugs, or what would happen if we eliminated the war on drugs? Well, there, there are a number of countries that don't have such an intense war on drugs, and Portugal, Czech Republic, um, growing number of countries, and you can see that their drug using rates are lower than ours, and their drug overdose rates are lower than ours. They're doing better than us in all of the major drug indicators. So, um, I, I think it's pretty clear that people wouldn't just go out and use heroin. For example, um, I was in Colorado recently, and uh, marijuana is legal. I could have went out and smoked some marijuana if I wanted, or go to the state of Washington, or you know those kinds of things. That um, people are not going to go out and just do these drugs. Some might experiment, but um, certainly the vast majority of people won't. Yeah, I think on my 90th birthday, I'd like to try heroin, but I don't have time for it right now. <laughs> yeah, you should probably do it before your 90th birthday, because then you do it <laughs> your 90th birthday. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have too many things to do before I'm 90. I don't have time to mess around uh, with any new substances. I already, well, the substances yep. I like are legal. Legal, they're alcohol. I like a nice cigar yep. now and then, and, yep. you know. And coffee is a good one, but that's, that's the beauty of one. That's the Go beauty ahead. of getting older. You know what you like, and that's it. <laughs> that's great. That I mean, is. that's a, we want to make sure people get older so they know what they like. They can be responsible, and that's great. That's the goal. Now here's the question: because you know, I used to be a cigarette smoker, and I was very highly dependent physically dependent on cigarettes it was a son of a bitch to kick that habit now i smoke a cigar now and then i'm not dependent at all actually in the last two years i had one cigar so that's not very (laughs) that's not very much dependence um i do like one now and then if i have time for it though um how is it with uh, other drugs with things like heroin cocaine uh do people move from dependence down to sometimes to a moderate use to a non-dependent use? First of all, most of the people who use heroin are not dependent, so they don't need to move, right? Most of the people who Mm -hmm. use cocaine are not dependent, so they don't need to move. But certainly, as people get older, um, their behavior becomes more responsible. So, yeah, if they are dependent or they meet criteria, DSM criteria, for substance use disorder, yeah, certainly as they get older, they become more responsible. And really the criteria or the symptoms related to drug abuse are has a lot to do with responsibility and tempering one's behavior in that domain. As we become older, we get better at that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some people choose to quit. Some people choose to moderate. Yeah, I think that this notion of quitting is overrated. You know, um, I I don't know, I don't really care if people are using. That's not the big thing. The thing I care about is people being responsible. Like Mm -hmm. when I go to some meetings and I hear people stand up and say, I'm 24 years uh, uh, sober. Who cares? All I, what I care about is how are you behaving? Are you a responsible person? Are you treating people well? I don't like the fact that people use this thing as a badge, as if it somehow makes them more um, 
uh, 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 superior at some level. Mm-hmm. So I I, yeah. I think the emphasis should be on how you are behaving. Mm-hmm. How you're behaving, and are you happy, or are you sitting in these mis- yeah. meetings, being miserable every night, and sitting in these meetings? Which, man, I couldn't sit those, through those meetings. <laughs> but I know I go to those meetings, and I want to get high afterwards. Oh, I tell you, when I started going to twelve step meetings, I was abstaining when I started, and I had gotten out of treatment recently. By the time I left, several months later, I was drinking a liter of whiskey every day. Because they kept telling me uh, the alcohol is powerful and I was powerless. That's not a good message for my brain anyway. I had to get away from that to, uh, you know, get things under control. Because I'm not powerless. I I have to be powerful enough to make my choice. Do I want to quit? Do I want to control it? Where do I want to be at? You know, certain things I choose to quit. I quit television. I can't. It's too hard to control. I don't like to have one in my house. I just waste time. So I don't let a TV in my house. I quit that. That was my choice to quit. Alcohol, I like to drink once a week. It's much easier for me to control. So, you know, but I think it's about your choice. But this idea that you're powerless, I think that it's just really harmful. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah, it's, it feels infantilizing that treats people less than responsible adults. You know, on the one hand, I, I want to make sure it's clear that I think that there are can be some very important things that are at those meetings. But much of the rhetoric surrounding drug use is inaccurate. But there are there are important benefits to socializing with like-minded people and socializing mm-hmm. with people in general. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, that kind of thing I really support, but just much of what is said about drugs is just rubbish. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to be down on the people that uh, benefit from those groups because I have a lot of friends in needle exchange. I've worked a lot in needle exchange. A lot of my coworkers are 12-step members. It works for them. They're happy with it and good for them. But it's not going to match me. It's not going to match everybody. I'm with you. One of the problems. I think that's one of the problems with uh, the current system is they say, well, we have one solution that's right for everybody. That's the 12 steps for us to put you through the treatment boot camp and drill the 12 steps into your head and then send you to the meetings for the rest of your life. Well, that's not going to be the answer for everybody, I don't think, even for the majority. It's fine for those that like it. You know, It should be a free country. People should be able to do what they like. If they like to go to AA meetings, they should go to AA. If they like to shoot heroin, they should be able to shoot heroin. I mean, that's my, that's my feeling. Yep, yep. Well, that's partly mine. I just want to make sure that people know how to do these things safely and stay safe and keep our society safe. Oh, yeah. Well, the fact that the drugs are illegal is what makes them so unsafe. If they were legally available and you knew what you're getting, uh, much safer. Yep, that's absolutely true. And then we need to teach people how to do these things safely. That's another thing because there is so much misinformation about these things. Mm-hmm. Well, I know your book, High Price, it's also, in addition to talking about your research, it's got some autobiographical information in there. So tell us, what made you get interested in drug use and researching drug use and drug users? 
I guess the major reason is that, you know, I wanted to learn something about the brain. Drugs are excellent tools for understanding how the brain works. On the one hand, other things is that we were told that drugs were so dangerous that they were destroying our community. And so I figured that if I knew something about drugs, I could help contribute to the community in, in a positive way. And um, so that was the, those were the major sort of driving forces. Mm-hmm. Did your opinions change uh, over time? Yeah, you know, I I used to think that drugs were the sort of um, they were the reason that the community was not doing so well. Um, and then along the way, I discovered that much of that was lies, and that uh, drugs were not the problem. There were other things, other factors that were more important um, than drugs like unemployment, lack of skills, lack of opportunity, all of these sorts of things were far more important um, than the role of drugs in poverty, crime, and all those things. Yeah, I think that's, you know, absolutely true. Um, You know, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Bruce Alexander's famous experiment about Rat Park, you know, when the rats were in this really nice environment they weren't interested in drugs, but when they were locked in the little bitty cage in the Skinner box, they want to do drugs all the time. And I think, you know, when people get stuck in, you know, in ghettoized neighborhoods, they don't have jobs, they don't have anything to do except do drugs or sell drugs, you know, it really pushes drug use to be increased. And, you know, when people are happy and have decent lives, they have much less motivation to do drugs. Yeah, certainly that, you know, Bruce's work, I wrote about that in the book as well. So, I mean, certainly, uh, again, this is all about providing alter- attractive alternatives. This all stuff, this stuff kind of grows out of the work of B.F. Skinner uh, well before all of us. And so, um, yeah, obviously those alternatives have important roles to play. But the thing is, too, is that people want people to understand even when people in are in deprived sort of situations, the vast majority still won't use and abuse drugs. That's important for people to know too. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so my my sort of major thing is that I wanted to make sure that people didn't blame drugs for the deprivations, for the uh, conditions of poor communities and that's what's been happening. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like the conditions tend to increase the drug use. It's not the drug use that brings about the conditions. You know, it's, it's the way we take yeah, the conditions we hear about it. can exacerbate it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, is there? Can we bring about social reforms? Can we bring, can we get rid of the drug war? Can we decrease poverty? Can we improve people's lives? Uh, is it possible? Well, I mean, the fact that you're asking that question is great. I mean, because, as you know, that question was not asked 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so it's nice that the question is now on the table. And the the answer to the question is uh, not yes, but hell yes, we can improve the lives of people and decrease poverty and do those sorts of things. I mean, we put a man on the moon. We've done all of these kinds of things. Of course we can lessen poverty and help people and uh, be more decent. But we have to have a commitment to do so. And we currently don't have that commitment to do so. 
And so the question becomes, it's like, what kind of people are we? Are we civilized? And um, the answer to that question might be, we we may not be. We don't really care about others. And so as long as we are like that, we see people as being others and not all Americans, it's harder to uh, decrease poverty. It's harder to take care of folks. It's harder to make sure people are employed with meaningful jobs. Well, I think that's probably a good place to bring us to a close. So tell us, uh, again, what is the name of your book and where can we find you on the Internet? The name of the book is High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society. Um, just do a Google for my name, Carl Hart. Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter, at Dr. Carl Hart. That's D-R, Carl Hart. Um, website, the same name, drcarlhart.com. So um, I'm out there. Yeah, there's lots of videos on YouTube and all over the place, Vimeo, where you can watch uh, Dr. Hart talk. And, you know, that's where I first discovered him. And, you know, a great author and a really important reformer in this in in this world and changing things, helping us to change things around. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Carl. Thank you for having me, and um, uh, good luck. Okay. Everybody, we'll see you all next week with a new show, and see you then. Good night.